Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. We are continuing with our conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire is currently a professor of psychology and the director of graduate training and the coordinator of the behavioral analysis program area at West Virginia University. And together we're celebrating the publication of an article that Claire and I wrote together for the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behavior. And the article is on loopy training, which is very exciting. So we ended last time in the middle of a discussion of one of the many rabbit holes that we went down as we were writing the article. And this one was on the consistency of handling. What impact does consistency or the lack of consistency have on the outcome of a procedure? And are you monitoring your handling to see if what you say you are doing matches what you are actually doing? Whether we refer to handlers working with animals or teachers working with people, how much of an impact does the consistency of the handler matter? We stopped last time just as Claire was setting the stage for a question. She was going to describe a study And then she had a question that she wanted to ask of me. So we'll jump back in and let Claire go ahead and describe the study that she had in mind. There's, I think there's interesting things about the consistency of handling. And I, I will describe a study to you and then I have a question for you that I, I, I'm interested in your opinion about. So there was a study that was done by Candace Colon and Bill Ahern a handful of years ago, and they were interested in inconsistencies and implementation. And this was with, this was with human learners, with students. And one of the things that they found in that study is that if there was consistent inconsistencies, okay, sorry to, to be right. So like if the, if the implementer was never consistent, behavior was really deteriorated. There was very, learning was very poor. And then they did this phase of the study where they dropped in what they called probes. And in the probes, there was consistent implementation. So sometimes in some, sometimes when the handler worked with, when the handler, goodness, when the teacher worked with the student, there, they were inconsistencies. And sometimes it was perfectly beautifully consistent. And what they found was that learning was much better when there were periods, at least, with nicely consistent implementation. Okay, so that's the study. We actually replicated that with with another learner with different kinds of behavior and found very similar things. When we had little bouts of very consistent implementation, we were able to kind of carry the learner through inconsistent implementation a little bit better. Now, I will level transition to say it would be better if there was never inconsistent implementation. Uh, I will yeah. also say, but we're humans. So we are inconsistent. We're human. We're human. I do research on inconsistent implementation. And so you would think of all the people in the world, I would be the most rigid about consistent implementation. 
Um, and my friends and I who work in this area, um, Sam Bergman, who is a faculty member at um, UNT and I were joking, like we make like people who work on consistency as their primary lines of research are inconsistent sometimes. Like we're all human and learning some of these skills is really hard. So this is, this leads me to my question. As a handler, when I'm working on a new skill where I think I've done the practice, I have slid up my lead rope in my house with my halter attached to my door and I think I've got it. When I transition stimulus conditions out to the horse, I'm probably going to lose a little bit of what I had in my house just because we know how changes in stimulus conditions work. Yes. I may not be as beautifully consistent as I want to be. Do you think that part of what's sliding in known other responses when I'm in that training session? So doing a little bit of sliding up the lead rope and then a little bit of something that I've got targeting, backing, something solid helps to resituate my learner in ways that might be similar to what Cologne and Ahern saw in their paper. So that's an interesting perspective on the micro shaping strategy. Mm. See, this is a, this is a, this is one of our zoom conversations, isn't it? Of a rabbit hole. Oh, we should look at this. This is why this was such a fun process for me. Um, so that sounds very much like the micro shaping process where you have two behaviors. One is the behavior that you want to improve. And the other is a very familiar known behavior such as targeting has a history of high rates of reinforcement behind it. The animal knows it well, neither you nor the learner have to think very hard in terms of implementing the second behavior. So it's not as though you're going from quantum mechanics to learning Sanskrit. So you've, you've got these two behaviors and you do a little bit of the first behavior, the behavior that you're wanting to improve, and then you shift over to the second behavior. And that's basically the procedure that you're describing. And what you see is when you shift back to the, the first behavior, you see these really solid jumps in the consistency of the performance from the learner. Interesting way of, of thinking about it. So there's at least three things that are happening in the microshaping process, right? So one is that you're just taking a break. Yeah. So there's a period of time with the new behavior where you're not working on the new behavior yep. because you're working on the well-established behavior. Right. So one is just like a think break, the horse equivalent of a cup of tea perhaps, right? Like I was working on this hard thing. I don't have to work on a hard thing. I now can come back to the hard thing and I'm better at it. The second piece is that there's a shift in what the expectation is. So you're working now on a new behavior, right? So I'm shifting between two forms. So it's not just a break, but it's a break that has a different response in it. But I wonder about the third piece, which is the handler consistency. So the first two pieces are the learner on the learner side of the loop, really right? Like, are you taking a break? Are you working on something else? But there's also a third piece that I wonder about on the handler side, because I wonder if those newer, harder responses are as smooth or fluent or consistent for the handler as the well-established, well-practiced responses. And I wonder how much that contributes to the jumps. And you could tease that apart. And also 
because we're you know we're applying the loopy training concept to this when you're working on that first behavior you're you're starting out with really small tight loops so you're not practicing the whole slide down of you know if it's a rope handling you're not saying we're going to go all the way down the lead rope all the way to the snap and ask the horse to back up we might just be practicing the first letting your hand slip off your one hand slip off the other so that you make contact with the lead rope and oh my horse responded by standing still beautifully click and treat you know i'm just working on a small piece of building that so yeah there's a lot in there to tease apart very fun you know the consistency makes me think of a story and then we can come back to that when i was training panda the mini that's a guide i had to be absolutely consistent because there was never going to be a time when her blind handler would be able to see a curb or to see a change in elevation and so the training demanded a level of consistency that I did not need so you know I could see the curb for example if, if I was running errands with Panda and we were going to the post office for example we got out of the car and, and I got panned out of the car, we always had to take the route that a guide would take with a blind handler. But if I was in a hurry, that's not the route I would have taken. I would go kitty corner across the parking lot. I would take that diagonal because I could. it's a shorter distance. But I couldn't do that even if I was in a hurry. I always had to take the route that a blind handler would take because the expression and it's one that I learned from John Lyons, the horse doesn't know when it doesn't count, so it always has to count. Panda doesn't know when it, oh, today it doesn't count. No, it always counts. And so when I turned Panda over to Anne, there was, in a sense, there was a sense of relief that she was going to Anne because it's exhausting mm. to be that consistent which is why we're not that consistent. Now, if, if I were training a horse to be a top-level performance horse, I would be much more consistent in terms of my expectations of myself, which would be reflected then in the horse. Then I might be in a relationship that I have after all these years with Robin, who is not being prepped to be the next Grand Prix senior citizen, <laughs> Grand, Grand Prix champion kind of thing. So consistency, uh, yeah, it's, of course we're in, in, inconsistent. Well, and sometimes we want to be, I mean, and I suppose there's a difference between a little discrepancy where you want to shift your criteria. Because when we're shaping, we're, in, we're changing the criteria in a way yeah. we are not being consistent, but it's small, hopefully, it's a small enough discrepancy that we can progress without creating the frustration. But when we become inconsistency, it's like the discrepancy, the discrepancy is so big yeah. that you know the, the horse can't figure out what the gap is. Yeah, for me, inconsistency really comes in when the when the interaction becomes unpredictable, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I think that that's the difference between how I think about 
inconsistencies in teaching and training and how I think about shaping. My shaping is, is hopefully predictable. You know, like I'm not, I'm not making these big steps where the learner can't predict what the expected behavior is going to be. And they're not, maybe, maybe they'll make it to that criterion and maybe they won't, right? Like if I'm, if I've put my learner in that situation, I've done something wrong. It also depends on what you want the final performance to be. So kind of what Alex was just saying about training a Grand Prix or, you know, a high-end horse, if you want, if you need this to be under very specific control, right? Which is also the case with Panda, right? Like you need very exquisite stimulus control and for responses to be very, very predictable with very little variation. And then you have to, you have to teach very fine discriminations. But for a lot of what we do, it's actually better for me if my horse can tolerate a little bit of variation within bounds because it gives me a little bit more latitude, right? Like I don't have to be so perfect. Perfect. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, I I don't want to be unpredictable, but if my hand, you know, is, is here versus one inch higher versus one inch lower, I still want my horse to be able to take the food from my hand. Um, And I don't want it to be so like, I have to be in such tight bounds that we inhibit the fun in the learning. Yeah. Where the horse is grumping at you because you're in quotes doing it wrong Mm -hmm. and and, and you're not being clear with him. But this is where video really comes back in, I think, because we don't always realize the way that we have accidentally introduced things that make the horse grump at you because you're doing it wrong. And it's a fun interaction between horse and handler and figuring out what works for this horse. I have five horses on my property right now, um, and I'm working with training all of them. And so it's got to be careful that I don't re it. If a horse, one horse needs me to do something in a particular way to be successful, that I don't then port that over to a horse that doesn't Mm. need that. And is going to get confused by it. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's lots of layers of behavioral control and stimulus control that go into all of these parts of the loops yes. to really make them function well. Yeah. So what, what were some of the other rabbit holes? Do you remember? Um, I'm sure that I do. There were lots of them is part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a wonder this paper ever got written because we were often very much, oh, Oh, let's go chase that one down the for a little bit. Well, the good news is that there there might be other collaborations between the two of you. Then, definitely, <laughs> there's always, like I said, you know, you know when you've done a paper well, when you are not so tired of it by the end that you're like, just never let me see this again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> just get this out. Let somebody else, let it be somebody else's problem. And I think it's really fun when you are at the point that you say, oh, hey, you know, like this, this is an interesting idea. This, you, you've got to draw the line somewhere because you can't yeah. put everything all in one paper. Yeah, we're going to, we'll stop here. But uh, what should we do next is, is the, the right attitude to have. Yeah. And um, all the way down to when we created the diagram, like what should come on top of the, you know, so we have this loopy, we have a, the loop and the loopy training diagram. And we had a long discussion about, are people going to imply that you start somewhere in a loop and that there is an entry point or can you pick up anywhere? And how much do we need to be explicit about that? You can 
look at all of these pieces of the loop. So you decided to put the conditioned reinforcer at the top of the diagram. We did. I'm, I'm going to let Alex talk about that. Okay. This is, this is a pull from her diagrams that she uses in the clinics. I don't even, re I don't actually remember what some of the discussions around that were. And because, where we because in, in the diagram at the top is the conditioned reinforcer and at the bottom of the circle is the cue. Yeah. And I think I use, that's normally how I put it. Yeah. So the, so the conditioned reinforcer would be the click. Yeah. And then we had long, what was, what was the phrase that we struggled over in terms of? Consumatory response, probably. Uh, there was nope. another one in terms of reinforcers. Our, our reviewer struggled over consumatory response. We didn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I think it's interesting to put the conditioned reinforcer at the top because I think that in a linear approach to thinking about behavior change, you start with the SD, right? It's ABC. You don't think about the fact that you could start thinking at the C. Yeah. And so I think it's, I think it's actually kind of neat not to start it at the A at the top, the way that people would read it, because I think it helps. It's a very subtle way to me of underscoring that you can jump into the loops at any point and that you, you, could and maybe should start with teaching the reinforcement process and not start by thinking about what the cue is and how am I going to arrange this cue? Because I think one, one really interesting contribution of your work um, and the idea of loopy training is, is cues evolving out of yes. the way that we teach rather than thinking about like, okay, well, this is going to be the cue. So let me do cue. And, you know, the very first thing that I need to be thinking of is Q. And maybe one of the later things that you should be thinking of is Q. Um, yeah. But when you think ABC in a line, instead of this kind of circle of handler, learner responses, teacher, learner responses, we tend to start at A. Yes. yes. And there's interesting implications of that. Such as? Well, I think, do you let the cues evolve? And then do you go look mm -hmm do you go look for what they are? We've been working in the clinics on a series that you call the line of trash, right? And so the line of trash, um, line of junk, line of trash uh, has been- Line of stuff. <laughs> line of stuff, line of stuff to do things with has been really interesting for me because it has underscored that my horses are more creative than I am. Huh. <laughs> Often are. It's very humbling. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what, what we should do with it. Okay, guys, you have to explain in a few sentences at least what the line of trash is for. Okay. So you, you collect up a whole lot of stuff. You look around your house and you look around your barn and you gather up a pile of stuff. And some of the items that you gather up will be things that will be very familiar to your horse, things they're very comfortable with things that they would have no worries about interacting with. And some of the other things that you gather up might be very unfamiliar or very scary or have a previous history where your horse is going to look at them and say, how fast can I get into the next county? And so you would start not with the things that are difficult, but with things that are really easy. So we might, for example, start with a washcloth. That's usually what I give as the example. And the idea is to see how creative can I be as a clicker trainer? 
with a washcloth. How many different ways of interacting with a washcloth and my horse can I come up with? So you're not headed for a particular outcome. You're not saying, I want to teach my horse to be saddled. And so I'm going to start with, can I touch you with this washcloth? And then transform that into a saddle pad and a, and a saddle. I mean, that may be your, your goal, but you're stepping away from that goal-oriented linear path for now. And you just look at a washcloth. All right, so can I play, can I touch you games with the washcloth? While you stand quietly, can I touch you with the washcloth? Can I stroke your neck? Can I stroke down your leg? Can I, can I touch any part of your body, including your face, your ears, etc.? And so that's one class of activities that I can do with a washcloth. Another type of activity might be having the horse stand on the washcloth so it becomes a foot target. You could hang the washcloth from a fence and it becomes a stationary target. The horse could go out to the washcloth. Can I get two different colors of washcloths and teach discrimination? So you're just teaching lots of different ways that you can interact with a washcloth. And then you go pick another object. And the object might be a water bottle. And you would be looking at some of the things that you can do with a washcloth would be the same things that you can do with a water bottle. So the washcloth, you might have taught uh, body part targeting. So the horse is bringing his, the side of his face to the washcloth. He's bringing his ear to the washcloth. He's bringing his eye to the washcloth, which would be really great for medical care. He's bringing his shoulder to the, to the washcloth. Well, you could do body part targeting with a water bottle. So you would be transferring one set of skills over to a different object. You probably wouldn't have the horse stand on a water bottle. But there are things that you could do with a water bottle that you might not be able to do with a washcloth. So the idea is, how creative can I be? And then I'm also developing a broad repertoire of, it's like I'm building building block skills, I'm teaching building block skills. So if my horse learns body part targeting to a washcloth and then body part targeting to a water bottle and body part targeting to a sweat scraper, and uh, I'm beginning to generalize that skill. And so when it is, will you, now that I want, to teach you about saddles, will you come over and, and stand underneath the saddle that I'm holding up? I've already got the skill in place. So that's the idea of the line of trash. And what I wanted to encourage people to do is to push their, the boundaries of their creativity a little bit so that we got away from the linear thinking of, oh, I'm getting my horse to touch a washcloth which is going to become a towel, which is going to become a saddle pad, which is going to become now my horse is being saddled. And so that links to why I, I thought there was this relation to how we drew the diagram in the paper, which is exactly what you just said. Like if I am looking at this washcloth as an antecedent for a particular response, right? Like I am looking, I'm looking at this like as the antecedent for this particular response, that's a very kind of linear, let me start with the A and figure out how to get this antecedent to control this particular behavior. 
And I think that when you think about being able to kind of step in to the loops at different points, um, being able to teach each part of the loop kind of separately, you can teach how to get the food easily. You can teach the reaction to the, you can get the click, you can get your own behavior of reaching for the food under the control of your auditory stimulus of your click, that that is a game changer about how you approach the whole teaching process, because it means that you're not so rigidly linked into here is, here is the antecedent that is going to then be the discriminative stimulus for this particular behavior. And it unlocks a lot of opportunities to let your training take lots of different directions. So just so the listeners don't become frustrated, I want to describe (laughs) what the diagram is because we keep talking about it and we haven't really said what was on. So there are four rectangles in a round, in a circle. On the top, there's the conditioned reinforcer, which would be the click. On the right is the consummatory response, which I guess is eating the carrot. At the bottom is the cue. And on the left side is the target response, which is the behavior, right? Yeah, you so, got it. Because we, we've been talking about this diagram, diagram now for 10 minutes and we haven't described it yeah. yet. So I can, I can imagine some people might be frustrated. So I guess the, um, having the click on the top and we've seen that in your work, uh, Alex, the click on the top like that. But it's true that it's maybe not where someone else might have put these different uh, rectangles. Yeah, left to my own devices, I would have been inverted, I think. I would have started with the cue. You would have put the cue on top? I would have put the cue on the top, but I think it's better mm-hmm. to have the click on top. Well, that's usually where we start when we want a clean loop. Right. I mean, thinking about what you need to teach too, if you don't Mm -hmm. have a learner that knows how to get the reinforcer, your cue isn't going to do much, right? Like your- And your loop isn't going to be clean. Absolutely. So I think it, I think it makes a lot of, it makes a lot of sense, but it, it's interesting because when you come from a very linear, like ABC tradition, Mm -hmm. it's interesting to think about, oh no, we're going to put the conditioned reinforcer at the, we're gonna put the click on the top of the day, like where people where people are gonna start consuming this is gonna be with the conditioned reinforcer. And what are the reasons that we might do that? It's just really interesting to think about. There are good reasons. Yeah, yeah. which loops us back very nicely, almost to the start of this conversation. If we can remember, if we can take our loop all the way back, is that for me the fun and the interest in doing this paper was to say, all right. You know, I've been exploring this idea now for a lot of years. What does, what does it look like through a very different lens, from a different perspective? So you are much newer to the animal training in terms of loopy training. So where do, what rabbit holes does that open up? What are the areas that are of interest to you? What are the assumptions? that I was making that don't quite match up. And then when we sit down and we spend the afternoon talking about, well, what should be on the top of that diagram? I think we're both enriched by that experience. So it, it was a phenomenal, it was a phenomenal opportunity. And I really thank you for creating it, for saying, you know, we should, we should 
write an article together. But as a reader, you know, it's really, it's fun too, because it's interesting because you see the loopy training process that we have learned and come to really like applying, but then you have all these references to yeah. the literature. So it's great. I really, you know, I think it's, um, it again, for me, I appreciate every time the choice I've made as a trainer is validated by science, you know, because we say we train based on science, but this is a concrete illustration of it. And that, that also takes us towards the end of the article when we talk about, you know, what are some of the hurdles in bringing these two communities together? And of course, one is what we've already talked about is, you know, the access to the literature can often be difficult for those of us who don't have access to a, a university library. That's a hurdle. The language base can, can be a major hurdle, that if you're not trained in a particular field, that learning the, the language and understanding the history behind certain phrases and what they mean, you know, and we, we talked about this, I know, Claire, in some, in some of our conversations, that periodically one should really review the terms that you're using, or, and certainly when you're starting a new collaboration, it's worth uh, starting out by saying, well, this is how I'm defining the, the terms that I'm using. And so if you hear me using primary reinforcer, this is how I use it in my world, and you may be looking at that going, oh, that's not, that's, not, that's not what it means. But if we can say, all right, in this, for this community, this is what procedural integrity means. And in this community, it means something completely, or stimulus control would be a great example. And yet, there will still be you know, within a community, a lot of discussions. Yes, you know, we were absolutely. just talking in a recent past podcast, you and I, Alex, about something I really enjoyed in your course where you were talking about constant on cues versus cues. initiation cue. The starter button, but that word, those two words, starter buttons, have been used a very yep. different way in husbandry training in the past few years. So we need to define what, no. because you're not using it in the same way at all. You're using it like I'm starting my car. Right. That's my starter button. I'm just asking the horse right. to start the movement of backing up. And then I'm going to leave a constant on cue, which in the example we were giving was uh, moving towards the horse and then you stop moving that's the end of the constant on cue right. but you don't keep turning the key in your car over and over and over again you just press the pedal to have the car go on but the starter button is something you use once to initiate the the movement yeah so at the start of of a project at the start of a book at the start you know or at the start of a collaboration, it is worth, you know, it's almost like it's worth for each individual to come up with, here's my dictionary. These are going to be an afternoon's conversation, not an afternoon's argument, but an afternoon's conversation about how, no. you know, how are you using it? What is the history behind that? That's always fascinating. So 
being curious about the meaning the other one is yes, using. Yes. Not critical, curious. And so that those were some of the hurdles. And then there was that we have different goals often. And I thought that was a really interesting point that, you know, the goals for most of us who are working with animals and we're training, that our goal is to see change in the behavior of of our animals that we want to see. Uh, we want to see progress being made in the tasks that we're training. And that oftentimes the goal for the researcher is to understand the underlying concepts behind learning and that those goals don't necessarily match up. So when you're reading a research paper, they're not necessarily speaking to what you're looking for or what you want. And, and I thought that was a really mm. valid and interesting point as, we, as those of us who are looking from outside the field are trying to learn. You know, it's important as we look at the research and the studies that are done, it's like, oh, okay, they're not trying to make me a better horse trainer directly. Well, right, not directly. Um, and I think part of that is that one thing that we need to do or we often try to do in laboratory research is isolate yeah. variables. We talked about that before, you know, is it the weather? Is it the handler inconsistency? Is it, you know, when we are doing micro shaping, is it that you're taking a break? Is it that you're sliding something else in? Is it the way that the handler is interacting? Honestly, if you just want to teach the horse the new skill, it probably doesn't matter if it is the break from the skill or the introduction of a new skill, that the package of those things together, if they work really well, are very effective. It gives the handler something else to do during the break. It keeps the horse in contact with reinforcers. Um, and so sometimes you need to know what little piece of a of a procedure is leading to behavior change. And sometimes you don't, it depends on what the outcome that you're looking for is. And when we started talking about teaching discriminations, um, so I've been teaching my horses letters and shapes and colors and other fun things. Um, I had a horse that was on stall rest for a while and he was gonna go stir crazy if we didn't do something. And he's got a really good position discrimination down. I can be very, very subtle about which one comes out slightly ahead of another, like by a quarter of an inch and he's got it. And it is a great trick now because I can have people yes. hand me anything and he can get it right. And I know what he's responding to, right? He's mm -hmm. responding to the position of the two items. But if you don't know to look for that, I showed it to some of my friends <laughs> who, are, who are behavior analysts who should be able to spot these things. And I got all kinds of answers for why this horse had this discrimination right away. Very few of them said, <laughs> it's probably a position. Um, mm -hmm. It's probably a position discrimination. And it doesn't really matter to me, you know, under some circumstances, whether he can actually discriminate an O from a W. Um, it's a, yes. it's a fun thing for us to do together. It's a fun trick for him to have. Um, it allows us to show off in some ways that are amusing to other people and that cause people to go like, oh, wow, your horse is, yeah, your horse is really smart. And I'm like, yes, he is. But if I was doing that for research, right, I would need to be careful that I hadn't accidentally taught a position preference or that I hadn't accidentally taught a side preference. And then I don't publish something where I say, 
horses prefer O's to W's. <laughs> now that one would be a silly thing to publish, right? But it, it can become important if I start to say horses prefer living in isolation to living in herds or horses prefer, you know, being ridden in long shanked bits to being ridden in snaffle bits. And I think that there's lots to think about when it comes to what it is that we're teaching that the science can really help to isolate, but that's not always the goal of your everyday training, right? There's a, there's a time and a place to have that level of rigor. My training is made better because there are people such as yourself and absolutely Jesus who's been looking in on what we've been doing for years. My training is made better because the, because you're there saying, why, why, why? <laughs> yeah, definitely. For me, it's, if I didn't understand why, I don't think I could apply it as well as, you know, I, I think it has made me progressed a lot, which is why I'm always looking for more science and more answers to my why question, because practically they make a big difference. You know, because when you're in front of your animal, you have, all these things that in the back of your head, you know, that makes so much sense. And in a fraction of a second, you'll make a decision, but all these things add up in the back of your mind. And I know for me, it's made me a much, much better trainer. Well, and ideally this is bi-directional, right? So think about all of the things, even just in our most recent, oh, well, there was the study by Cologne and Ahern and they did this thing. How do you think that plays out in training? Oh, well, here's three other ideas for research that we could do to disentangle mm -hmm. pieces that may be important that could then go to inform training. So I think it's one of the pieces of collaborations that involve individuals who are in practice, and that might be animal trainers, it might be the teachers that I work with, people who are out in environments where their, their main goal is to have that significant change in behavior that makes the life of a learner better is to inform the research so that the research can have something to say about the practice. And, and that is an unfortunate disconnect. You know, people lament research to practice gaps in every area uh, in which there are research to practice links. And so the more we can do to make those relationships strong and bi-directional, the better off everybody is. Well, even some of the research that has already been done, we're kind of rediscovering a lot of things that were already there that were just ignored for some reason and not being used by practitioners. So, Or we didn't know the importance of them mm. until the context changed, right? So mm. sometimes I think findings, some research findings are ahead of their time and they make more sense. Or you find new ways to apply them that you didn't know about when they first came out or you hadn't thought about when they first came out. And then you learn something new and that sheds a new light on an old finding. Um, but there's certainly a lot of gems in the, the old literature that might have been popular when they were first published and might've had a big impact then, but we can view them now through a, a more refined lens, a, a lens where we know more about behavior and the science behavior and, and how behavior and environment interact. And when we take these different lenses that your background working in the schools and so on is going to give you an appreciation of, and, and because you're a horse person uh, and you see the practical applications of it, of the loopy training when we take it to, out to the barn. And then you're thinking about this in terms of 
your, your research, that that gives us an opportunity to look at this procedure from a different perspective, that that has the potential for seeing elements that we didn't see before and for creating applications that we hadn't thought of before, which is really exciting. So I'm really looking forward to future collaborations because they, we did leave a lot of rabbit holes unexplored. Yes. Well, and I appreciate your willingness to, to write something for the scientific community because I think it's the, the value of getting publications out in the world is that we need more scientists who are interested in, in connecting with some of these issues that I think are hugely relevant to uncovering new research questions that help strengthen, again, those that conversation between animal trainers and behavior analysts. We have a lot to talk about. And so we've got to get more people involved in talking. And I think you've already done so much with getting the animal trainers involved and engaged in the conversation and certainly bringing a lot of behavioral science and behavior analysis to bear on that. And I'm excited to you know, be able to get the scientists involved, right? And get them interested in some of these issues of application that have important process underpinnings where we don't understand the entire mechanism of how this process works. And we could. Yes. Fun areas to explore on both sides. So there will be future collaborations, I hope. And that means there will be future podcasts. But I suspect at this point, we should say thank you immensely. And we'll let the loop circle back around. And there is never an end to a loop, but there has to be an end to a podcast. So (laughs) that's pretty good. Thanks so much (laughs) for having me on. Thank you, Claire. I don't have a lot to add, except to say again to Claire, thank you for a great conversation. And thank you also for taking advantage of the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behaviors call for papers to ask me to collaborate with you on the Loopy Training article. It was enormous fun, and it's an honor to have the Loopy Training article accepted by the journal. And I also want to thank my science camp friends, Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Mary Hunter, and Michaela Hempen. It's been an honor to collaborate with you as well and to learn so much from each of you. So I'll just end this conversation by saying, Look for opportunities to share ideas and to step outside your normal frame of reference. Say yes to projects. That's how you grow, and it's how new ideas take root. Next time, we'll begin a new conversation. So keep learning and have fun with your horses.